Welcome to Dunzo. This is a podcast that explores hookups and breakups of famous lovers and friends, both real and fake, and all the discarded pop culture of yesteryear. I'm your host, Troy McKeady. You guys, welcome to episode 166 of Dunzar. It is me, Troy McEady, and I'm going to be your chief stir for this chara. <laughs> I am very, very excited for today's episode. First of all, happy Thanksgiving. Well, happy Black Friday. Happy post-Thanksgiving. Happy Black Friday. Happy pre-Christmas. Happy pre-New Year's. Um, yeah, I'm, if I'm being 100% transparent with you right now, I already can't wait to be done recording this because I do have a kitchen full of leftovers. I do have a refrigerator full of usual wine bottles. And I am very, very excited to uh, get drunk again today. <laughs> I'm going to be honest with you. I'm excited to have gotten drunk earlier, ate a bunch of food, cooled down. You know what I mean? I, I've come down and I'm ready to come go back up. I'm ready to go back up. My second win has kicked in and I'm, I'm excited. But we've got business to attend to first and foremost. We are continuing our exploration into Christina Aguilera's wild ride. And uh, yeah, I'm super excited for today's episode, to be honest with you. This week is all about the transition from Christina Aguilera, the like budding pop star who was still being obsessively managed by executives and managers and labels and people uh, the Christina that these people visibly just didn't know what the fuck to do with, as we talked about last week, to the point that critics were sort of calling them out for it and making fun of them. To Christina Aguilera, the flamboyant, over-the-top, like, cultural phenomenon who had taken a lot more control over her career and really cemented herself as somebody who wasn't just another, you know, drop in the bucket. She wasn't just another one of the blonde girls. Like, she really came in, like I said last week, guns ablaze. Like, Christina hit the ground running. She was super successful, really, really fast, and she was on this meteoric rise to fame. I feel like it was established pretty early on that Christina was, as I always say, a part of the A group. And I feel like because the origin story of your favorite pop star was so important at the time, for sort of establishing what your tribe would be based on who you related to the most. We had all become super accustomed to hearing how sort of sideswiped all the other girls were by Britney and Christina. And I feel like it put Britney and Christina on a pedestal, hearing how often and how many times people like Jessica Simpson had walked into auditions and, you know, had to listen to Christina sing or watch Britney dance. And, you know, it put them at this like A-list pop star pedestal this is also the period of her career where I feel like she really leans into her public persona of being this like over-the-top diva because let's be real Christina Aguilera had like essentially created a drag persona for herself right like Christina basically turned herself into this like pop star drag queen where like she leaned into being a pop star in the most flamboyant way that a pop, that only a pop star could be. Like, only a pop star could show up to an award show dressed like Christina Aguilera and people not 
think it's fucking insane. And I think that Christina is one of those celebrities who very quickly started to sort of believe the hype about herself. Like, I really feel like Christina was affected by fame very early, as proven by the previous episode where she's in a limo with an interviewer from Rolling Stone. She has one song out and she's demanding people clean like spilled coca-cola at her feet you know what i mean like she very very quickly even before even when christina was being beaten up and jumped at school it's because she's always been this sort of diva i guess you could say in quotes i hate using that term but you know what i mean and i feel like being a pop star with the kind of success that she had sort of freed her to just lean into it in other words, what I'm really trying to say is that we're actually going to be talking about Christina Aguilera's feuds today <laughs> because Christina's feuds are so much a part of her career, her feuds with Mariah Carey and Pink and Eminem and Fred Durst and Britney and there's so many and they're all so iconic. Um, we're not covering all of them today because they all sort of span different periods, um, but we are going to start talking about them today, which I'm very excited about. We're definitely going to be talking about the very beginning of, I'm going to call it her timeline with Pink, because, I mean, when you have a feud that spans 15 years or whatever, I think at that point it can be referred to as a timeline, which also, by the way, means that we're going to be talking about Lady Marmalade. So on the tail end of the year 2000, Christina won a Grammy for Best New Artist, which is huge. And she beat out Britney, which was a real, you know, sort of flag in the ground moment for her and her team. Um, in one of her documentaries, her mom talked about how nervous she was and that after her speech, uh, she called her freaking out because she thanked her dad on stage. And Christina is one of those kids, like many of us, who has a dad and a daddy or a pops and a dad, if you know what I mean, like... She's got her birth father, who she obviously has no attachment to, but then she has her dad, who her mom married later in life, and the person that raised her, um, and I thought that was pretty cute. I mean, all of the stuff with her dad is just, like, so crazy to me. But anyway, she was nervous that the public would think she meant her birth father, who she had just gone on this giant press tour talking about, you know, packing up the station wagon with her mom and, like, fleeing from... And her team started planning the release of her second album, which would be a Spanish album. And Christina had actually expressed interest in recording this album before her debut. Um, so that was in the works. I guess it would have all kind of been happening at the same time, which is insane. Um, and because of that, they ended up recording Spanish versions of all of her singles from self-titled, including Reflection. Christina told the press that she was excited to release this record because she had more creative control than she had with her debut. Um, so they let her do a bunch of Christina shit. They let her add riffs and runs and growls and groans and, and grunts, all the Christina stuff that we love. Now, I have to be honest in saying that I think for Christina, this was a very genuine thing. This was something that she had mentioned for years and something that she'd wanted to do for a very long time. In almost literally every interview she did during the promotion cycle for Self-Titled, um, she really made it a point to mention that she was half Ecuadorian and that she grew up listening to Latin music and that she would love to make a Latin album and that she's a big fan of all these Latin artists. So I think for her, it was genuine. Now, with that said, 
for these executives, this was obviously a marketing strategy. And it was smart. Like, I'm not saying, you know, this was a smart a smart card to pull in 1999. I mean, this was something that would really differentiate Christina, not only from Britney, but from all the girls. And if you think about it, 1999 was, I mean, it has become known as the year of the Latin explosion in pop music. 1999 was the year of uh, Ricky Martin and Jennifer Lopez, of course, and Enrique Iglesias and, this was the year that Carlos Santana like crossed over into pop music because he did that song with Rob Thomas. Like this was a huge year for pop for Latin pop music. So Christina's team was like, well, yeah, like we want that Latin market radio play. We want that Latin market crossover press and we want that Latin market coin. And we know that to be true because it's not like up to this point, they've let her do anything creatively free. Like she has to fight tooth and nail to get an extra riff or run at the end of a fucking song so obviously they wouldn't just let her release an entire album out of the you know the the need from her heart to release a a spanish-speaking album like they thought that this would make a bunch of money which it did this also meant that christina could infiltrate a market that britney couldn't dominate even if she wanted to she couldn't do it first she couldn't do it better there was no way that Britney Spears could beat her <laughs> to releasing a Latin. How funny would that be? <laughs> How funny would it be if Britney was like, I'm coming out with a Spanish speaking version of Baby One More Time and it debuts one month prior to Christina's. The album debuted at number one on the Billboard Latin pop charts and eventually became the best selling Latin pop album of the year 2000, which again is crazy considering jennifer lopez had just had just basically come out like that is fucking insane jennifer lopez and ricky martin and carlos santana and enrique iglesias christina also went on this ridiculously successful world tour and she was asked to perform at the white house for the clintons at this particular point christina was being worked like a fucking dog which actually brings me to something I would be a fool not to at least start touching on at this point. I think now is a good time to, like, do this. We have to talk about the controversy surrounding Christina's weight. Because, again, if you were of a particular age, then you remember there was a lot of controversy surrounding how thin Christina had become. As a female in the entertainment industry, there's obviously always going to be some sort of weird, like, narrative surrounding your weight fluctuations. Like, over time, if you're famous long enough, it just becomes a part of your journey, which is super weird. Like, if you look at somebody like a Janet Jackson, I think Janet's fans, either verbally or mentally, <laughs> break down her eras by her weight. Because you have, like, soft baby-faced Janet in the 80s, but you also have, like, you know, China the Wrestler abs Janet of the early 2000s, and then there's also overweight Janet, like, running on the beach and being photographed and, and blasted all over every, you know, uh, and I'm saying overweight in quotes, like, what they would call Fat Janet, the one that, like, was working out in sweatpants and... You know, they were claiming she was having a breakdown and that she was, you know, fighting for her, her sanity because she's gained weight. 
And it's obviously especially bad for a pop star, but even more so a pop star in the early, in the year 2000, my God, before we had uh, <laughs> what I lovingly refer to as soft language, <laughs> meaning like a nice sort of politically correct way of uh, judging people's bodies and saying shitty things about women gaining and losing weight. Now it's like soft language that we use about women's bodies. But back then it was like, you could just be as as fucking bold as you wanted to be about the way a woman looked. Christina was already super fucking tiny when we were introduced to her. And it was sort of written into her origin story that she was tiny. Like she was the tiny little girl with the big voice. But we did watch over the span of a couple years, Christina gets smaller and smaller very, very rapidly. Like it was quick. So of course the tabloids started speculating that something was going on and that she was anorexic and that she was partying too much. And her team sort of chalked it up to her being overworked and not getting enough sleep or whatever. And I mean, honestly, I'm sure her schedule, her schedule at the time was fucking insane. And I'm sure it did have a lot to do with the fact that she was losing weight. You know, her like working 20 hours a day and being flown from country to country and then recording an album in between being on this crazy world tour and having new singles being released while she's also recording another album while she's also touring the album that's currently out like it's a lot but she did also admit years later to having an eating disorder that she learned in her teens and sort of carried throughout her adult life And when you factor in that she was, as I said earlier, partying like fucking Tara Reid on an all-expenses-paid vacation, I can't imagine what that was doing to her tiny little body. Like, and people were really, really fucking brutal to Christina about her weight. In her MTV documentary, her costume designer said that they would have to send out for new clothes or have her clothes altered a lot every month because she was losing weight so fast that they couldn't that they could barely keep up with it so she was being given these like protein shakes and meal replacement bars and you know all of this shit because management was worried about the press surrounding her low body and this obviously didn't sit right with a team of people using this girl as a fucking billboard to sell a bunch of shit like she obviously can't be too fat but she can't be too thin she's got to be just right now before we move too far away from the beginning of the year I do want to mention something that I find really funny in reference to Christina's dating history because so far we haven't really touched on it too much and it is something that I obviously want to explore I want to sort of like I said dip in and out of these relationships because there's so many weird little little moments for her so when you read about Christina Aguilera specifically her dating history. Nine times out of 10, you'll find Carson Daly on her dating list. And Carson Daly is so funny because he's one of those like, I've always viewed Carson as sort of a blank canvas. Like he's one of those blank canvas guys that could literally date anyone like he could have been paired with anybody in the early 2000s because he was constantly surrounded by the most like up-and-coming hot young 
pop stars and like TV and film starlets in the in the fucking industry or whatever. And he had become known as sort of an everyman in quotes, like he was everybody's host. You know what I mean? I think that's one of the most interesting things about Carson Daly in comparison to any other host that we had gotten accustomed to. Carson was everybody's host. You know what I mean? Like we would watch him interview a, va- a band like fucking P.O.D. and claim to be excited for their album to be released. But then he'd have an exclusive VIP phone call with Willa Ford in 20 minutes about her new single. So during one of Christina's first appearances on TRL, um, Carson was out for the day. And I don't know if you guys remember when Carson would be in quotes out for the day, they would have a celebrity host the show. So like Brittany and Melissa Joan Hart would host together or P Diddy would host or something. And on this particular day, 98 degrees was hosting the show. And by the way, I already have clips planned for Instagram. I've literally compiled a, a, uh, a Magnus opus of my favorite moments of that episode. I'm really on a Christina content tirade right now, and I'm not sorry about it. So apparently Christina left a note for Carson that said, in quotes, sorry, I missed you, end quote. That's it. It literally said, sorry, I missed you. So somehow USA Today heard tell of the note and they reported that she left this tawdry love letter to Carson Daly like it was some fucking perfume sprayed letter with like panties in it or something it said sorry I missed you and it exploded now it was also reported that Carson had invited Christina to the strip club to his favorite strip club And it was confirmed because Christina admitted to going. She had admitted to the press, like, yeah, Carson invited me out um, to the strip club and I wanted to experience it. I think she said that she had never been to one, which makes sense. She was like 19. So she went. And I mean, (laughs) you know, that's also like for 1999, for a 1999 pop star, like that's pretty fucking tawdry. Like that's pretty salacious if you ask me. I also think that this would have been the first time that we got a real, like, Christina is spiraling out of control headline was the night that she went to the strip club with Carson, because how easy is that as a headline to say, oh, well, by the way, her parting is also out of control, which it was, (laughs) but it, it just sort of lends itself to a wild and out of control pop star narrative. And it was also a big deal because at the time Carson was dating Jennifer Love Hewitt very publicly. It was big business, big tabloid business that she was, uh, or that he was dating Jennifer Love Hewitt. So Christina herself had to go on this little mini, like, press tour and tell everyone that it was just a rumor and that they were just friends. And she just wanted to experience the strip club for the first time because she's learning and growing and expressing herself. It was also reported around the same time that Christina was hooking up with Enrique Iglesias after they were spotted. Actually, they were asked to perform at the 2000, what is it, the the 2000 halftime show. And uh, the People magazine version of this story is that they got hot and heavy on the dance floor at a nightclub uh, a week after the performance. And they were spotted lip locking or whatever. And Christina had to release a statement to her website saying that, you know, they didn't leave the club together, which is literally insane. Um, She basically had to confirm to the world that he didn't fuck her, which is like, again, insane. Um, 
but they were spotted several times after. So in other words, they were paired together to perform at a thing and they got fucked up together after and they had sex a few times. Like it's really not that deep. And again, I know that I keep making this point, but you do have to factor in because somehow it it constantly uh, gets left out of the narrative when it comes to Christina Aguilera um, that she was going through a really intense partying phase and this was before it had caught up with her. This was when she was really wiling the fuck out. I don't know if you know this or not, and I don't even know if I've mentioned it already, but Christina Aguilera completed three rehab stints before 2011. So what I imagine is that during this like meteoric rise from 1999 up to the mid-2000s, she was living her absolute best Tara Reid life. And who wouldn't? You've got the potential voice of a fucking generation, the body of a mannequin, your new money, and you're like 20. I'm like, girl, go for E. She did start dating a 23-year-old backup dancer named George Santos. And she later said on an episode of RuPaul's Drag Race, uh, Untucked, that she dated a backup dancer who turned out to play for the other team. And that she was heartbroken because she found out that he was basically using her. Um, if you, He's in a bunch of her older music videos. He's, I mean, do you care? But, I mean, he's in the Come On Over video. He's the guy that's, like, holding her while she rocks her little hips back and forth with her, like, neon. Do you care? I mean, honestly, who cares? Now, do you remember last week when I told you that Christina ended up filing a lawsuit against her first manager? And very publicly sued him for essentially hijacking her career and turning her into an Arabian-themed Britney Spears. Uh, we have to talk about that. It's time to actually talk about it, which I act- I'm i very, very excited to get into this. Because for me, this is the true turning point in Christina's career. I think people associate Stripped with Christina's moment of like public liberation from being a traditional pop star in the pop machine and it definitely is but there would be no stripped had this lawsuit not happened and to be honest christina's real like free as a bird moment was lady marmalade and lady marmalade was a result of this lawsuit so there's a lot to get into in october of the year 2000 christina filed a fraud and breach of fiduciary duty lawsuit against steve kurtz and the court document stated improper with improper undue and inappropriate influence over her professional activities. Um, and she also claimed that he sort of tricked her into signing a shitty contract in 1999 that earned him 20% commission of her income. It also stated that Kurtz, quote, did not place the singer's interest above his own, did not act fairly and honestly and honestly in protecting her rights and interests, did not advise Aguilera independently of his own interests. And as a side note, I'm just like laughing to myself because I love when this podcast randomly turns into celebrity justice, like out of nowhere. And I'm reading court documents and shit that I don't even know what the fuck they mean. I'm like, the plaintiff stated in 1999, like, I don't know who I think I am. Kurtz responded publicly through his lawyer and he said that he found it disturbing that Christina would assert false and defamatory allegations against him rather than seek an amicable and graceful end to their working relationship. 
He also said, I'm very disappointed that Christina would wrongfully attempt to terminate our management contract when, during its term and under my management, she was awarded the Grammy for Best New Artist. Each of her singles and albums achieved the, the, number, one, the number one position on the Billboard charts, and she sold over 10 million records and had a successful headlining tour. Kurtz adds that he hopes Aguilera will use her, quote, intelligence and independent mind to, quote, question the motives of those who have encouraged her to pursue this baseless litigation. Now, the fact that Christina Aguilera sued her manager should honestly come as absolutely no surprise to you at all if you're listening to this episode. The music industry is literally built on trapping these young, naive, very talented people into shitty fucked up contracts that steal their money and turn them into working slaves. And the funny thing is that these contracts aren't even as shitty as the singing competition ones where Simon Cowell literally owns your mind, body, and soul. Like full-on fucking Bart Simpson, soulless, rowing his boat alone because Millhouse owns it. Like, those those contracts are the ones that really fuck you. But the thing that makes Christina's lawsuit so interesting is that it's sort of what every girl in her peer group probably dreamt of doing. Like, this is the fantasy. I would imagine that in the year 2000, a now worked to the bone <laughs> Britney Spears caught wind that Christina was about to wiggle her way out of her pop star shackles and probably started to question everything around her, especially because NSYNC had done the same thing. Like, if you think about it, Britney was one of the only ones that stayed in the same contract for so long with her original team like who knows how different her life would be if she had decided you know around 20 years old to try and get out of it after the lawsuit rca set christina up with a man named irving azoff who is super famous he's iconic in the industry he managed like patty labelle and uh in era uh, the backstreet boys for a while he's a big deal um, and this is the guy that she actually ended up staying with for like 20 straight years up until just recently because she signed with Rock Nation, which is crazy. I'm sure we'll talk about that in 18 weeks when this is over. Um, but the Irving Azoff years represent a liberated Christina Aguilera now making her own career decisions. Christina also said um, in that MTV documentary that Irving allowed her to take some much needed time off. I think around this time she had gotten really sick, like bedridden sick and had some crazy like body breaking down. You don't have enough white blood cells anymore flu. So she ended up taking time off and he was like, you need to take a fucking break. Like you're very clearly overworked and you're a skeleton. Um, so she, for the first time since she signed her contract in 1999, took a break. Now, before we get into this next segment, I just want to start by saying that it is truly my honor. It is an honor to be able to sit here with you and have the conversation that we are about to have. I really honestly, I'm grateful and it makes me feel like I'm in the exact place that I should be. Uh, I have been drinking today, but I still feel like I really, everything that has led me to this moment has led me to this moment. It was determined that for the release and promotion of the Nicole Kidman film Moulin Rouge, a group of pop divas, <laughs> I've goosebumps, would be chosen <laughs> would be chosen to perform the song Lady Marmalade together. 
Now, Christina's longtime producer, Ron Fair, who we spoke about last week, had this is where things get a little bit fishy. Um, he had been brought in as a manager for A&M Records. So essentially, he was running the show. He was able to, not only was he tasked with uh, finding who was going to be in this song, but he was the one that kind of decided who was going to sing what parts and all of that stuff too. And obviously, you know, Christina had a real foot in the door because this is her producer. Her producer who has invested his own money and time into this girl, he now has the opportunity to make her, you know, the voice of this like pop diva moment that is, I mean, without any question going to be a huge deal. So Missy Elliott was brought in to produce the song. And as I said, he had allegedly wanted Christina to basically sing what would be considered in quotes, the lead vocal really just like the biggest vocal of the the song, like the breakout big, huge moment that everybody would scream saying he wanted to give that to her. He also brought in Pink, Maya, and Lil' Kim. Let's talk about fucking Lady Marmalade for a second, shall we? I have a quote from MTV News. This was uh, the release of the news that they were going to be doing this song. It says, Christina Aguilera, Lil' Kim, Pink, and Maya have teamed up for a musical makeover of Lady Marmalade, LaBelle's disco classic about a Creole courtesan which is headed for the Moulin Rouge soundtrack. The ladies are the latest artists to contribute to the all-star Moulin Rouge album, which also features Beck and Timbaland's update of the David Bowie's Diamond Dogs, Fatboy Slim's house-fueled version of the Can-Can, what the fuck, titled Because You Can-Can, and Ozzy Osbourne's twisted reworking of The Sound of Music. I'm sorry, huh? Like, fuck. I remember, I I don't remember. <laughs> what? I'm sorry, I, I, I forgot. Now, as I'm sure you can imagine, in the year 2001, when the public finds out that four pop, R&B, hip-hop divas are doing a song together, our immediate minds, we wanted to know who was coming for whose throat. Like, who was trying to rip out whose throat? Whose wig was being tugged? (laughs) Like, which girl was planning on releasing a sack of marbles under everybody else's feet? Like, what was the drama? This is another MTV News quote from 2001. It says, what do you get when you put four pop and hip-hop divas together in a recording studio? If your answer is flying fur and scratched egos, in the case of Christina Aguilera, Lil' Kim, Pink, and Maya, you couldn't be more wrong. We're all in the studio together and we got along great. No catfighting at all, said Maya of the foursomes recording of the 70s girl group LaBelle's Lady Marmalade. It's a great thing, females getting along for a change. With Missy Elliott and Rock Wilder Productions, the quartet remains LaBelle's disco classic for the Moulin Rouge soundtrack uh, due April 24th. This rendition will serve as as the soundtrack's lead single, It's Hot, said Maya. And the really interesting thing about all of this is that they recorded their vocals separately. So their first time being together as a group would have been to film the music video, um, which we now know is the complete opposite of everything Maya described it to be and was extremely dramatic. And Lil' Kim later said that she, she had sensed a lot of tension between the girls and she was the only one that was friends with all of them. So they all kept coming to her to talk shit about each other basically um Lil Kim has had some really 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 funny quotes 
some underrated funny quotes about the recording of Lady Marmalade. Um, this one is from Billboard magazine, and this was actually pretty recent. She said, we worked really hard that day. The original Queen Bee told Billboard, I remember there was a lot of tension because, you know, Maya's my girl, but a lot of the girls didn't know each other, and I knew almost everybody, but it was like everyone was in their own little corner. Everybody talked to me, but everybody wasn't talking to each other, she continued. Everybody loved each other, don't get me wrong, but they, you know, but they all, they're, they're sisters, but uh, she said, but they didn't know each other, so it was like, let me just go talk to Kim because I know Kim. It was hard because I had to host the Lady Marmalade. Uh, she said years after the Grammy winning or years after the Grammy winning hit was released, it was revealed that there was indeed tension between Christina Aguilera and Pink over the song, with Pink claiming during a 2009 episode of Behind the Music that the soaring soprano essentially bullied her way into singing the song's climax by bringing label exec Ron Fair to their initial meeting. So Ron Fair walked in. He didn't say hi to any of us and said, What's the high part? What's the most singing part? Christina's going to take that part. And I stood up and I said, hi, how are you? Nice to meet you. Or nice nice of you to introduce yourself. I'm pink. She will not be taking that part. I think that's what the fucking meeting is about. Sorry, that's iconic. Pink also very famously claimed that Christina tried to punch her in a nightclub after the release of the song. Um, there were also rumors of like a spin the bottle game gone awry because... I don't know if you guys know this or not, but Christina was known for, how would I put this, sort of like sloppily hitting on the girls during this time, especially during Stripped, because like she had a drinking problem and she was always trying to hook up with people and then they would unfortunately out her for being sort of sloppy and them turning her down. I'm actually saving all of Pink's early 2000s feuds for the end of this episode, but I think I may actually save Pink for next week because so much of that is tied to Stripped and I want to give Stripped like its own entire episode. Um, so I think I'm going to wait for the Pink one. We'll, we'll talk about that next week so we can really actually get into it. Let's get back to the actual song because Lady Marmalade deserves a much larger conversation than Catfights. This song was a culture, this was the definition of a cultural reset like I can honestly say with my entire heart that the release of this song is probably one of my favorite things about being a young teenager in the early 2000s because it was released during a peak moment for all of these girls um and it was just so much fucking fun to sing singing Lady Marmalade as a teenager was a millennial rite of passage if you grew up singing this song as a kid, you knew every word, every riff, every harmony, every melody, every ad lib. Like we were basically in the studio laying, like layering tracks with the girls. Not a single note was missed. And when Lil Kim's part came on, oh, 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 are you kidding? You could not tell me that I was not like a sexy fucking sex positive rapper from Brooklyn who drank wine with diamonds in the glass like girl like this is I mean it's it's this is just so much of our childhoods like oh god this is a 2010 quote from MTV News about Lady Marmalade it says crafted for the soundtrack to director Baz Luhrmann's burlesque reviving Technicolor nightmare Moulin Rouge 
and featuring a video that saw each of the four ladies decked out in their finest glam outfits. Lady Marmalade was a force to be reckoned with at the beginning of the summer of 2001. Had it peaked later, it would have been in contention for the official jam of the season. It caught each woman at an interesting time as Aguilera was only just coming back into the spotlight. Her second album, Strip, was still a year away. Pink was just beginning to make her transition from pop singer to the hybrid star that she is today, and Lil' Kim was still a big deal. Interestingly, interestingly enough, Maya was probably the biggest star of the quartet at the time as her smash hit Case of the X was still fresh in the minds of the pop crowd. This song ended up breaking a bunch of records. I believe it currently holds the record for the longest reigning number one by like a, a all-female collaboration. And the music video won them two VMAs for video of the year and uh, for video for a film. It also won them a Grammy in 2002. Like this was huge. Lady Marmalade was massively successful. And a huge point of contention for the critics was that Christina's look in the music video felt like, at the time, it felt like she had gone too far. Like, she looked too much like a whore for this whore-themed music video. And if you think about all of the other girls, starting with Kim, like, obviously it's expected that little Kim can wear whatever the fuck she wants, wherever she wants to wear it, because she's little Kim. This was a couple years after her nipple pasty moment at the VMAs, Pink was never really presented as a pop princess, so people didn't expect that of her. And let's face it, Maya was a sexy black girl, and the public generally doesn't put young black girls on that same sort of like purity pedestal that they do for young white blonde girls. So to my earlier point, this really would have been the first time that we saw Christina really be allowed to go like as far as she wanted to go which is honestly crazy because when you look at this music video she's probably the most covered up person aside from missy like she's pretty much fully covered she's the only person who doesn't have her stomach out and maya is pretty covered too but this is why i say that lady marmalade walked so that stripped could soar <laughs> that's a stripped reference you either get it or you don't this was also, unfortunately, the peak of Christina sort of cementing herself as a forever fashion victim. Like, she started making the worst dressed celebrity of the year list around this time, and it just sort of continued throughout the remainder of her career, um, because she was super flamboyant, and to be honest, it, it, and this is coming from somebody who is like a full outsider, but also like knows enough about Christina to dabble. As an outsider, it always felt like Christina tried so hard to be different. She tried so hard to separate herself from Britney. And again, as an observer, I think that translated. Like, I think the public understood that every decision Christina made was to differentiate herself, whether it was what she was wearing or what she was saying or the way she did her hair or, you know, the songs that she chose to put out, like, it all came off as, like, very, sort of, like, look at me, but then I want you to look at her, and then look at me again and realize that I'm not her, you know, it was just very, sort of, like, try hard, unfortunately. So, as previously mentioned, I said that I was gonna save the iconic Christina feuds that she found herself in for the end of the episode, so here we are, we're just gonna sort of hop around a little bit and, um, 
kind of finish this out before we officially exit 2001. And the first one that I want to touch on, of course, is Fred Durst, because duh. Christina Aguilera, and that was the highest my voice I think has ever gone. I think I just reached full, Mariah. Um, Christina Aguilera <laughs> and Fred Durst's relationship is an interesting one. <laughs> Sorry, that was like a lot. Um, it's an interesting one because it started off as this very public crush on her part. And she was very open about it. She was always saying in interviews how cute Fred Durst was. And she was all over the place talking about how she likes bad boys and guys that wear uh, caps and dicky shorts, like literally describing him. I have a quote here from Rolling Stone. This is from 2001. I have a lot of quotes from this from this magazine, actually. It says, check out the arm of Christina Aguilera when she arrives at the Grammys, the Grammy Awards on February 23rd. On it may be fellow nominee Fred Durst. The Limp Bizkit singer is one of the teen idol's current crushes and apparently a requited one. He wanted me to be his date for the MTV Video Music Award, says Aguilera, who was nominated for Best New Artist and Best Female Pop Vocal Performance. But it was Aguilera's record company, not the 19-year-old singer, who nixed the idea. They were like, no, absolutely not. But in the future, I'll probably do something like that, Aguilera said. She wants to, <laughs> Aguilera says she wants to date a popular musician, someone who can appreciate her hectic itinerary. But she isn't into the JCs and the AJs of her musical category. She digs the bad boys of hard rock and rap. To tell you the truth, pop music is what I listen to the least, because my mind is always wandering off to different places, she says. I never actually wanted to be a straight pop artist myself. So fast forward to the 2000 VMAs and Christina performs Living It Up with Fred Durst. And I, I mean, I guess she thought it would, I guess she thought it just to be sort of easy about it. I guess she thought it would make her cool. Like, I, I, I think she thought people would think she was cool. But the result was this super, super awkward performance that made absolutely no sense to anyone not any of her fans or his. Nobody really got it. It came off really try hard and very just like, look, we're doing something crazy for the VMAs. Isn't this crazy? Like, that's what it felt like. And, you know, it also took this major backseat to the fact that that same night, Britney ripped all her clothes off for the first time and exposed a bedazzled nude bodysuit that ended up becoming you know, a, a think piece and a conversation for the remainder of the, the, I mean, for years, I mean, we still talk about that. And the conversation after it happened was insane. So both Christina and Fred, of course, tried to separate themselves from the performance after the backlash they got from it. Um, Fred was called an embarrassment to rock music and a sellout. And it, it made Christina just look foolish um, because Britney had this sort of like career defining night at the same time. And it was just so, it, it really must be something that she looks back on and is just like, fuck. Like, it wasn't like this was the, the Teen Choice Awards or something. This was the VMAs. And you performed with a guy who very soon after said terrible things about you. I mean, the whole thing is just, it, it must be, really hard for her to think back on. And Fred Durst said in an interview that he, go ahead and say it with me. <laughs> Let's say it on the count of three. One, two, three. He did it for the nookie. 
<laughs> he said that he did it because he wanted to sleep with her and it was the only way that he could get in her pants. To which Christina Aguilera very famously responded and said, quote, you wish you got some nookie from it. She said he got no nookie. That did not happen. It's some really crazy stuff that people want to insinuate and people want to say, and it's hurtful. The second feud that we're going to be covering today is, of course, none other <laughs> than her long-standing public, very, very public feud with Marshall Mathers, a.k.a. Eminem. Now, from what I gather, the origin of Christina's feud with Eminem stems from her outing to the public that he had gotten married uh, to Kim Mathers because he, I guess, wanted it to be secret. They have this, they had this like secret ceremony and he didn't want people to know and she outed him. She said during an MTV special called What a Girl Wants that young women should basically be careful of marrying men like him because he writes songs about cutting up his girlfriend and, and choking her to death and putting her in his trunk and driving it off of a bridge and how he fantasizes about killing her all the time. And this is a girl who comes from an abusive home who watched her mother get beaten up by her dad her entire life and obviously was abused by him as well. I, I told that story last week of her walking up to her mom with blood streaming down her face because she made too much noise. I mean, it's like the fact that she was treated so poorly publicly for saying that this guy who writes songs about killing his mom and girlfriend to like for young girls to be careful of guys like him. It, it, this whole thing is fucking insane. This is so early 2000s. This of course resulted in Eminem releasing a song and including her in it called the real slim shady. Um, and I'm going to read, I don't know if you remember the lyrics. <laughs> this is going to be really weird to read the lyrics of this song. Um, but it says, you think I give a damn about a Grammy. Half of you critics can't even stomach me, let alone stand me. But Slim, what if you win? Wouldn't it be weird? Why? So you guys can just lie to get me here. So you can sit me here next to Britney Spears. Shit, Christina Aguilera better switch me chairs so I can sit next to Carson Daly and Fred Durst and hear him argue over who she gave head to first. Little bitch put me on a, put me on blast on MTV, yeah, he's cute, but I think he's married to Kim. He he, I should down, <laughs> uh, I should download her audio on MP3 and show the whole world how you gave Eminem VD. So this obviously sent Christina and her team into a fucking tailspin and immediately sparked this weird internet folklore rumor that Christina had released a diss track. Now, this one is a deep cut, and you've got to either be a Christina stan or just be old. If you are <laughs> if you are younger than, like, 26, you're not going to know what the fuck I'm talking about. But this weird song that you can still find on YouTube called The Real Slim Shady, Please Shut Up, um, exists. And, I mean, if you've heard it, you've experienced the secondhand embarrassment from it. By the way, it is not... Christina Aguilera and the folklore of this song is now so it's been an internet thing for so long that I don't really understand it from what I gather this was a song written by another woman and it was potentially going to be sang by Christina but people thought that Christina was rapping this song and it is oh my god 
bump the real Slim Sadie. Please shut up. Please shut up. Please shut up. It's really, really, really uncomfortable. It's funny. I used to put this on every, whenever I would make somebody a CD, <laughs> back in the day, I would always put the real Slim Shady, please shut up on it, because I just thought it was so funny. It's like, this is insane. Eminem also very famously posed with his Christina Aguilera blow-up doll from the music video on the June 2000 issue of Spin Magazine. It's iconic and really fucked up. He also brought it out on stage um, during his performances of the real slim shady on tour and i know i keep like i I think i keep claiming to like be ending the episode or something like i'm gonna end with this but i really am actually going to end um with the rolling stone interview that i mentioned earlier it's really interesting because this is uh intended to be like christina's coming out interview because the first one she was like not really fully formed yet. She had an album that was due to come out. She had released, you know, one or two songs and the world didn't really know her yet. By this time, Christina has really lived a crazy fucking life in a year. She's released this monumental pop album. She has cemented herself as one of the greatest voices in the music industry currently. Um, She, I mean, she's A-list. Like she is a part of the fucking A group, as I always say. It says the limousine pulls into the parking lot of Canadian music video network Much Music. The driver opens the door and the sound of Black Rob rapping Whoa bursts out of the doors, followed by the pop star, a teeny blonde teen in baggy army green pants. She walks at the head of a growing entourage to her dressing room and slips into a black baby t-shirt that halts just below her solar plexus, exposing a navel that wouldn't look out of place on the label of a Gerber baby food jar. Sorry, but that's like a really crazy read. Uh, Written in silver on the front of her shirt reads, I love Playboy. Dear reader, meet Christina Aguilera. She is 19 now, almost 20, she says, and she's sick and tired of being treated like a child. I wasn't sure if I should wear that Playboy shirt, she admits after the Much Music show. It's suggestive in a way. So me and my stylist discussed it and I decided I'm 19 years old and 19 year olds are going to wear things like that. Just because I have a certain image, everyone wants me to be this role model, but nobody is perfect and nobody can live up to that. I'm living my life. She realizes that she's beginning to sound pouty and stops, then looks up wide-eyed earnestly like an adult. I think my personality is fighting to come out and that personality is fighting with the image that everybody else has of me. Teeny boppers, your good girl has gone bad or at least she wants to go bad, or perhaps she's always been bad, or maybe it's just been a really long, confusing nine months for her. She is heading for a final meal at her favorite restaurant chain, Houston's, the same place she dined the previous night. She has just rented an apartment in Los Angeles on the other side of the country from her mother and stepfather, and as she gazes out the window of the van, it dawns on her that she might miss the East Coast. This is amazing. Ooh, she coys. I want a New York boy. There's so much energy here. And what exactly is a New York boy? A little rough neck. (laughs) Sorry. A little rough neck. She smiles wickedly with the bandana. I don't know if I can read this. With the bandana and the cap to the side. You're not going to be boys. (laughs) Sorry. Okay. A little rough neck. She smiles wickedly with the bandana and the cap to the side. You're not going to meet boys like that in L.A. So in the next part of the interview, um, she opens up a magazine and she flips to a page of DMX. And she told the interviewer how hot she thinks DMX is. 
And the guy makes a joke about how Christina must use Rolling Stone as a dating service because the last time they interviewed her, she literally mentions Eminem having a crush on him, Fred Durst, like everybody that uh, uh, Mark McGrath, all of these people that she was in some weird way like linked to or tied with. She buries her nose back in Hits magazine, halting this time at an advertisement for a teen pop group called Innocence. There's another one from the Mickey Mouse Club, she says, pointing to one of the girls, Nikki Deloche, who was in the same illustrious 1993 cast of the show with Christina Aguilera, Britney Spears, Justin Timberlake, and J.C. Chazé of NSYNC, also starring Carrie Russell of Felicity. Flip, 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 stop. This time it's a full page close up of Eminem's head. She pulls the magazine towards her face until it's just an inch away from her perfectly frosted lips and whispers something indecipherable to the image. Then she jerks the magazine back and twists her head into a grimace and screams airbrushed. So this is where they get into the Eminem conversation. And by the way, I found this very interesting. I just like love knowing what people, what celebrities like to eat. So while they're doing this interview, she ordered um, nachos, chicken tenders, fries, and a fully loaded potato. And the interviewer made it a point to say that she got a bunch of dipping sauces. I also love to know if somebody's like a sauce person or not. I don't trust non-sauce people. I'm going to be honest with you about that. I don't trust people who don't like ketchup. And I know that that alienates a large, a large number of you, but I don't. I don't trust it. I, I don't want those people in my life. Though Christina, her mother, her manager, and everybody in her orbit like to downplay the incident, it is probably the worst thing that could happen to a 19-year-old like high school all over again. Eminem decided to spread lies or half-truths, you decide, about Aguilera's sex life in her late, in his latest single. Aguilera says, Eminem, man, that's crazy how like one comment can make somebody angry, says Christina. And the interviewer says, do you mean your comments on MTV? And she says, what happened was I was asked, do you still have a crush on Eminem? And I said, he's cute and everything, but he's got too many girls after him. Besides, he's all married now, so I'm not. I'm going to stay away from that. It wasn't a diss at all. And if you're going to be, her word not mine, retarded like that to think it was a diss, then you know I'm not apologizing for anything. The interviewer says, I think there was another reason that Eminem was upset. Do you know why? She said, no. The person said, it was because on MTV you criticized him and his lyrics about getting revenge on his mother, on the mother of his child. She said, oh, right. I probably said that that song 97 Bonnie and Clyde is disgusting. You know what I mean? Geez, slicing up your baby's mom and stuffing her into your trunk and shoving her into the ocean with your daughter watching. That's disgusting. I'm sorry, but I think the majority of people in the world think that's disgusting. I think it's really wrong of him to diss me like that because all of this past year, I've been so positive about him and recognizing his talent. And she's not lying. All she ever really said before this was really positive things about him because I keep having to fucking read through how she says she has crushes on roughnecks. She said, I was offended and really disgusted by it, to be honest. The fact that he's talking about diseases and all that, but I see where he's coming from. In a sense, you take this, this is amazing. This is such a read. In the sense that you take this guy who wants to be respected as a serious rap artist or whatever, and all of a sudden he's in the world of MTV and TRL, I can see where he would get a little mad and want to rebel against the Britney Spears and Sync Backstreet Boys world of teen music. And if he has to do it this way and be all immature about it, then fine, be that way. I'll just answer to it in my next record. Laughs. Haha, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> So then the interviewer goes on to bring up Fred Durst and how he appeared in the real Slim Shady video and how it felt like a real um, sort of pointed attack against her. 
And she said, um, this whole thing is complicated. It's really crazy. It messes with your head. Fred is crazy. Fred, man, how dumb are you if you're trying to get with somebody and then you're going to appear in a video that flat out disses them? You know what I mean? Fred and I were actually being really cool with each other. He took me out one time and bought me a milkshake. He was just like, I know this bomb ass place for milkshakes. And we left this club and he was really cool. Then I started hearing all this stuff and I was tired of it. I was like, something is up. He's being really shady. He flat out told me before the video came out that he was in it. The interviewer asked, do you know what that's about? And she said, I haven't really heard much about it, but I knew he was talking all this stuff about me. Um, but if he really did tell Eminem that he slept with me, none of that is true. Seriously, I haven't spent any, quote, quality time with either of these two boys. And that is where I think we are going to end the episode today. You guys, next week it's happening. Can you believe it? We're talking about Stripped next week. The real reason that I really wanted to do this, I mean, let's be honest. I just wanted to do this to talk about Stripped. Obviously, it feels really good to work through all this Christina stuff and... It's fun for me because, like I said, I don't remember so much of this stuff or a lot of it I genuinely didn't know. And the stuff that I didn't know, I didn't know all these crazy details and all of this weird shit about her and Eminem. I didn't know that she outed Eminem's marriage. Like, I don't, I, this is, I'm in heaven. I mean, honestly, I cannot wait for next week. I love you guys. Um, I hope that this episode got you through your Black Friday, whatever it is that you're doing while you're out at fucking Walmart buying a TV with a mask. Like, I, whatever it is that you're doing, I really hope that it helped you through it. I love you very much. I will see you next week. And, uh, yeah, bye. Thank you for listening to Dunzo. This podcast is a part of the Solid Listen Network. Please take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe if you haven't already. Also, be sure to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash solidlisten for exclusive content. You can follow me on Twitter at Troy McGee, and you can follow the podcast on all forms of social media at DunzoPod. That's D-U-N-Z-O. Thank you to executive producer Molly McAleer and coordinating producer Nicole Matthew. the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.